sermon podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Thank you, Aaron. Well done. Um, But I will be bringing part two message from our promises and promise keeping last week. So for those of you um, who haven't been here for all of the services in the last five to seven weeks, we're in the middle of a series on building healthy community. Living into Community is the name of a book that Pastor Jade and I have kind of modeled this series after. And the book is built on four practices that are essential. And the practices come from a study done by uh, a lady who has worked in nonprofits, but is also a biblical scholar. And they are four practices for sustaining healthy community. And it's primarily intended for churches, but all Christian organizations here. In the first week, we talked about gratitude, and then we talked about the practice of truth-telling. And then now we are talking about promise-keeping, and then the fourth will be the, the following two weeks from now. And I think it's important to remember that these practices are for the sake of building a certain kind of community. That what is of utmost importance, the goal is not mastering practices, but the goal is being the kind of community that is open to the work of the Spirit embodying Christ in our community. So what is a promise? Well, we're going to put all the technical definitions on the shelf and simplify this down to a promise is choosing to bind oneself to a future course of action. Pretty simple, right? Binding oneself by choice to a future course of action. Promises uphold the internal framework for every relationship and every community to function. So think about this. Think about our society and the way our economy works. We check our phones, we go to an ATM, we get on our computer, and we check our bank accounts. And that bank account says a number, hopefully greater than zero. And, but sometimes in life, it says zero, and God is there too. But there is a number, there is a number that is, that is revealed to you on your computer screen. And what that number means is that if you go to an ATM, or you go to a bank, or you go to use your debit card somewhere, that that money is insured to be available to you. That is a type of a promise. Of course, it's not using promise language explicitly, but it is a promise. Think about when we go to a restaurant, and it's not a fast food restaurant, but a a sit-down restaurant, and we sit down, and there's a mutual implied promise, an understanding, if you will, that if you bring me food, at the end of this, I'm going to pay you. That, and this, these are just common things that we don't even think about in the realm of promises, but without these kind of implied inherent promises in society, it doesn't function. Well, why is that? Because without promises, there's no way to know who or what to trust. And communities and societies cannot be built where there is not trust. So where promises are made and commitments are kept, trust strengthens. Where promises are made and they are broken or commitments are broken, trust is lost, trust diminishes. 
And this is where we see societies strengthen or strengthen strong, strong, strong is the word I was going for. This is where we see strong communities that are built on strong internal fabric or societies where promises and words mean essentially nothing. And I think this is part of the denigration of society that we have seen is not just pure evil coming into society, but is the erosion of our commitments and the erosion of our promises to where our word just doesn't mean as much as it did a long time ago. I mean, I don't know about you, but nobody in this room would do something like buy a house off of a handshake agreement. Nobody in this room is that trusting. Even to someone else in the room, you probably still wouldn't do it. Why is that? Because we have been so conditioned by society to mistrust people's words and largely and often because people have broken promises and not followed through on their commitments. So now we have a, a society that almost everything is governed by contracts. So we are called to be a people who live by covenant in a world that is governed by contracts. And this is not impossible to do, but it is difficult to do. I want to read a verse here. I didn't do this in the first service, but I think this is really important. In Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 4 and 5, this is right in the heart of one of Paul's most important arguments. He says, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, For just as each of us, has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and then this is the important line, and each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. In a world where not making commitments and breaking promises is normal, in a world where we don't go over and above anything that is demanded of us or expected of us in the contract, we are called to be a people whose lives are given for the sake of the body at large. We are called to be living members of the singular body of Christ. We are not all individual bodies of Christ. We are all living members of the singular, the one body of Christ. And part of what makes promise keeping so powerful is that the church is called to be one body and that one body is called to look like an alternative community in the midst of communities that are governed by contracts. We are called to be communities that go over and above, that are living by commitments that sometimes we didn't even know we made, but because people have those expectations, we follow through. We're people who are called to give everything that we have for the sake of the people around us. To not just, as Jesus says at the Beatitudes, not just fulfill the base requirements of the law, but to be ones whose character and whose entire embodiment is given over because we have been compelled by the Spirit for the sake of the other. There is a story that I read about church membership in the early church that I found fascinating. So you have to keep in mind, early on, they didn't have churches literally almost on every corner of every shape and every flavor and every style and where they agree on the things in the creed, but very little else. It was typical in, you know, up until just a couple hundred years ago, where if you lived in a town, there were very, very few churches for you to choose from. I mean, pre-Protestant Reformation, 
it was highly likely there would be one church in a community. And then after the Protestant Reformation, maybe two, maybe three if you lived in a place where there was an Orthodox presence. And not only were there few churches, but those churches were in the midst of local societies with minimal mobility. So people were forced to go to church and to be in community with people that they were not like and people that they couldn't escape from. There was one market, there's one church, there's one strip in the town, there's one saloon, if we're talking about 1800s West America, right? There, that when you had disagreements with people, when you were at odds with people, there was little to do to escape aside from move to a different city. So people had to learn to be committed to one another through thick and through thin over the long haul. So there's this story uh, in the early church about membership where this one particular city that when someone came to Christ and they were called to be planted and given one to another as members of one body, that part of the process is that they would be called and invited to come and knock on the doors of the church day after day after day until one of the apostles or one of the disciples or bishops opened the door and welcomed them into the community. And this, this was important because it was setting the stage for just how strong a commitment you were going to have to make once you were on the inside of those walls of the church. That coming to church wasn't a flippant thing. And I don't mean coming to church like on Sunday mornings, but choosing and, and following the call of God into a local expression for a long period of time was taken so seriously. So they would have them come and knock sometimes for just a couple of days. Sometimes it would be for weeks. People would have to come knock on the door and they would wait and they would wait. Then they would go home and they would do it the next day for weeks at a time. Then, where is see, where am I here? So they would knock for weeks. Then they would come in and they would have a ceremony a declaration of intent, a bowing at the feet of the community in prayer, vowing to leave anything in their previous life that would encumber the health of the community. This is what it was like early on to be a part of the body of Christ. And I fear that we have, including myself, such a limited understanding of what it is to be given and committed one to another and we don't use language like promises and promise keeping all that often outside of religious circles. So some other words that when I say promises might help us think along the same train tracks here. Think commitment, think fidelity, and think faithfulness. These are the words that should mark our relationships one with another. Yes, all of these revolve around the realm of promise making and promise keeping, but think about commitment, being committed, being a people of fidelity, not infidelity, being a people who are faithful in the way that God is faithful to his people, not in the way that society is. We are humans and we are prone to infidelity. And to me, I see this in two major ways. One is broken promises, broken commitments. And the other, the more recent one, and I mentioned this last week, is just not making commitments at all. Not wanting to be bound, as our definition is, to something in the future because we can't tell the future. What if a better option comes along? 
I mean, what if a church that I completely agree with gets planted in the next six months? Not the one that I'm currently in that I 96% agree with, but one that I completely am on board with everything. And they're all Alabama fans. I mean, what, what if that kind of person or kind of church comes about, right? And this, of course, does not just apply to church, but for the sake of our, our message this morning, this is primarily the realm of Christian community that we are talking about. And I, I saw, and part of this comes from reading and part of this comes from my own observations, that there are these cultural forces that are not inherently evil or wrong, but they are so prevalent around us that are pressing against, they are resisting this kind of covenantal commitment that I'm talking about. And I want to talk through just a couple of these and then we're going to turn to some other scriptures. One of them is the elevation of freedom and autonomy. Freedom and autonomy have never been more valued in human society than they are now. And you may be thinking, well, the Bible talks a lot about freedom. Paul especially talks a lot about freedom. But the kind of freedom that Paul talks about is being unencumbered with the things of life so that you can be free to love and serve your neighbor. Not be unencumbered with the things of life so that on any given moment, any given whim that you may have, you can maximize your experience, you can fulfill your desires, and you can have all of the joy that is promised to you. The kind of freedom that the Bible talks about is freedom for the sake of the community, for the sake of the other. The freedom that society elevates is FOMO freedom, right? Fear of missing out freedom. Autonomy. I don't want to be tied down to this one thing because what if I find something later that expresses me even better, even more truthfully, right? What if, it's, what if I find something later that is even more true to who I currently am than what I am in in this given moment. So this is one, freedom and autonomy. They've never been stronger pressures throughout history. Another one is options and mobility. As I've already talked about, there were not options for church, for restaurants, for entertainment, for vacation destinations, for kinds of houses and jobs and, and finding a spouse, all of these things. We've never had more options, and I'm afraid options are only going to increase as the internet continues to expand and as everyone continues to have a global presence everywhere on every issue, right? We have more options than we've ever had and we have more mobility than we've ever had. So whereas in the past, there may have been a few options and we had limited mobility, now we have all the options in the world and we can travel around the world in less than a day. And with the internet, you can be in tune with what's happening anywhere around the world in a matter of moments. So now we have options and mobility that resist long-term rootedness and long-term commitment to a group of people. Then we also have a general underlying mistrust of institutions. And I think this goes for inside the church and outside the church. We have a mistrust of, of government. We have a mistrust of big businesses. We have a mistrust of the educational system. Now we're even finding we have a mistrust of the healthcare system. Now we, have, we are finding, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, a much younger, less seasoned pastor than Pastor Jade, but I've been in this long enough to know people are very mistrusting of the church. People are mistrusting of 
almost all institutions, even institutions who are dedicated to serving the people around them. We're suspicious and not always for wrong reasons. Why are we mistrusting? Well, for one, because immorality and infidelity, there are stories of leaders that abuse and misuse power and authority all the time. Leaders that break promises, that make promises that mean literally nothing all the time. So now we mistrust institutions. So we're, we're coming into this already at guard. You have to convince me that you are trustworthy. And this is part of the culture around us, right? And then lastly, hypocrisy in our language. What I mean by this is for one, yes, simply when we use words that we don't really mean. But also in the church, I think we're prone to something that's even more insidious and potentially more harmful. And that is using covenantal type language, language about being family, language about being on mission together, things that we, language that we use here at Antioch and we mean it and we're serious about it. But then flipping the script when things get difficult on either side, on the institutional side or on the member side, when language becomes meaningless or twisted for the gain of an individual or an entity, when we're hypocritical in our language, it leaves people wounded and broken, and then it perpetuates this process. Go somewhere else, be mistrusting, keep people at an arm's distance, right? So we have all of these societal pressures that are making it very difficult, increasingly difficult almost by the day, to learn to be faithful and committed one to another. There is this story, I mentioned this in first service last week, I didn't mention it at all in second service in the book of Ruth. And for the sake of time, I wanted to read a good chunk of it. I'm not used to doing this with a mic in hand, but I'm just gonna read a, a few verses here. And I want you to note a couple of things. One, the book of Ruth is situated chronologically somewhere in the midst of the latter end of the book of Judges. If you, if you know anything about the book of Judges, the whole book can just about be described by the last verse. Let me read the last verse of the book of Judges to you. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what they saw fit. That's basically the story of the whole book of Judges, right? So when, when that is the context, this story takes on even more of a contrast. So I'll paint the picture and we're just gonna read a couple of verses. And this I think is one of the most beautiful stories of fidelity, of faithfulness, even of hospitality, which is gonna be talked about in the next couple of weeks. But I wanna focus and emphasize on the commitment and the promises made and the promises kept of the main players in the story here. So in the book of Ruth, we have an Israelite family that lives in Bethlehem. A famine comes to Bethlehem and they flee to the land of Moab where there is plenty at this time. Ruth, or uh, excuse me, Ruth, I always, I know the difference between Ruth and Naomi, but I always switch their names. Naomi is the matriarch of the family. And in the first few verses, we find that her husband passes shortly after being in this land. Then she is left as a widow with her two sons, who as Israelite men marry Moabite women, and then shortly thereafter, they pass away. So now we have this family and we have three widows, the matriarch widow and two young Moabitess women. Naomi gets word that Bethlehem is no longer in a famine, that there is a harvest, and she decides I'm going to go back to my homeland. 
So they start the journey back. And after they've already started the journey back, Ruth real or Naomi, see, I told you, I told you I was going to do it. Naomi realizes everything my daughter-in-laws know is in this land of Moab. Their husbands have passed. They've never been to my homeland. And there's nothing obligating or tying them to come back with me. So she frees them. And she says, please go back home, find other husbands. And then we see that one of the, one of the daughter-in-laws does, and the other, Ruth, has this response in chapter 1, verse 16, if you're tracking with me, Brittany. But Ruth replied to her, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Here's her promise. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I mean, this is a pretty strong promise to begin with. But even more when you take into consideration that this lady this young girl is willing to leave everything for her mother-in-law. No, that was a joke. Bonnie told me to make that joke. There weren't mother-in-law stigmas in the same way back then. But in all seriousness, she's leaving everything she has ever known under no obligation. She makes a volitional promise to her mother-in-law. And I can't help but wonder why. And the Bible doesn't give us the exact reasons why. This is part of the way the narrative nature of Scripture is that there are probably multiple reasons why. One of which I have come to be convinced of is because Ruth understood and knew that Naomi was vulnerable. That Naomi, she loved her, and she had been good to her from a mother-in-law to a daughter-in-law. But more than even that, I think she knew that she was vulnerable. She was old. She was a widow. She was going to be traveling a long distance. She had no husband, no sons. She had nothing. She thought, Naomi thought she would be going back to a land which she knew, but she hadn't been there in at least 10 years, the story tells us. She could be going back to something that is hostile. She has no idea. So I'm convinced that at least part of the reason that Ruth is wanting to go with her is because she's wanting to serve her and love her out of a deep commitment for who this woman is because she might be vulnerable in this story. So then the story keeps going on. They get back to Bethlehem. They do find that there is a harvest. And Ruth takes it upon herself because, like I said, Naomi is elderly, that Ruth is going to go out to the harvest fields and start to find bread so that they have something to eat. So she goes into a field that happens to be the field of Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, which means that he was one of part of, or one of uh, those in line that would redeem the line. So it, so it is, which basically just means if somebody passes, it's another way of taking responsibility for the people in the community. So when a relative passes, you take their family, you take their land, you take all of their, their debts and their assets, you take all that they had, and you now take it into your family fold. So Boaz is in line for this. She doesn't know this at the time. Boaz is impressed with her character, and he blesses her. 
And then Naomi finds out about it. And Naomi says, he happens to be one of our kinsmen redeemers. She goes and gives Ruth this little plan to convince him to take them back under his family wing, which he does willfully. But then I want you to hear the promise that he makes to Ruth after he's already been impressed. I didn't read it. I didn't go through all of chapter two and then part of chapter three. But Boaz is impressed with her integrity and her character, her faithfulness to Naomi and her work ethic. And this is his response to her. Chapter three, verse 10. Boaz says to her, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. It's kind of weird that he calls her his daughter and then he's going to marry her. I don't know. That, that's interesting. I don't think he knew at the time. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, this is the promise, I will do it. So lie here in the morning. Then as the story goes, the other kinsman redeemer, actually Boaz kind of baits and switches him to get him to not say no so that he can purchase the this land and retrieve this woman as his wife. But once again, I want you to hear how striking this is. There's no obligation here. Just like the first guy passed, he could pass. She's actually a Moabite woman, which if you read the book of Deuteronomy, you know that the Moabites and the Israelites are at odds with one another. That there's almost nothing in this for him to quote unquote gain. He is doing this out of a heart of commitment first to Naomi, but then to this woman who he has seen with noble character and integrity and commitment. And so he goes once again above and beyond any obligation and makes this promise, this elaborate promise. So then he takes her and marries her. And then I want to read at the end of the book of Ruth here, and then I'm just going to go through a couple of points. Uh, chapter 4 Verse 9, I'm going to start in verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Those are her sons and her husband. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. And then hear this. I just think this is beautiful, especially in line with the blessing that we sang and talked about. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah. 
So the elders see this elaborate story happening in front of them and these incredible acts of commitment with a woman who is a Moabite woman. She's not even in their clan. She's not, there is no legal obligation he could have passed. He didn't even receive the property for free. He had to purchase the property and receive another wife. And yet this man is committed to this woman who had been committed to another woman who had previously been committed to her. There is commitment flowing all around. And one of the beautiful things about this story is that God takes this non-obligatory type of commitment, but a commitment that is birthed out of love and compassion and wanting to care for people deeply. And he not only turns it around and blesses all of them, he blesses the community. And then through this story, he has blessed you and me. That this story ends with a genealogy that is then repeated in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. The only difference between the two genealogies is that in Matthew, the author, Matthew, takes it another step further and actually includes Ruth's name in the genealogy. I mean, this, this doesn't hit us the way that it would hit a Jew. But this is incredible. And it seems to me that one of the many things that is happening is God is putting his stamp of approval on this kind of faithfulness, this kind of willingness to step out and be committed to someone when it might cost you everything and you might gain very little. But when we make these kinds of faithful, committed promises one to another, even if we don't use the language of promise, I believe that God is there, that God is at work bringing faithfulness out of even our unfaithfulness, that even when we are unfaithful, even when we make good intended commitments that we then break, or when we make promises that we can't follow through on, that when we are the kind of people who are willing to, whose character can uphold these promises, I believe God does something even greater with it than we would have ever had in mind. When we commit to live our lives for the people around us, God is great enough to make flourishing possible even when we do it unfaithfully. God is the kind of God who can make flourishing for all of us possible even when we live together imperfectly and unfaithfully. The emphasis has to be thrown back on the kind of God he is to live covenantally and to make promises with a people that he knows cannot live up to our end of the bargain. I want to read a few verses here in Matthew where Jesus seems to be making a similar point. Matthew 5, 33. This is one of the Beatitudes, which the Beatitudes are not a replacement of the law, but an intensification of the law. Jesus is talking to them, and he often starts in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with, with a, you have heard it said, and then he amps it up to the nth degree. So Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 33, Again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes, or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
So Jesus seems to be saying, in the past, you have heard it said, don't break your oaths. But now I am saying, don't make oaths at all, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, be the type of people whose character is the weight behind the promises and commitments you make, not the complexity or the severity of the words you situate them in. Let us be the kind of people whose character is, is, is a default to be committed rather than not committed. The default is to go the extra mile. The default is to give of what we have for those who don't. The default is to lay our own rights down that they might become the rights of another. The default is that we would, like our King and Savior, if it costs us, lay our lives down for the sake of others and for the sake of the community. Aaron, would you come? We're going to come to the table here in just a moment. And I talked about last week the way that this meal is, of course, so many facets and so many things happen when we come to the table, not the least of which is the renewal of promises that God has made to us and promises and commitments that we have made one to another. Whether we know them or not, when we come forward to this table, we are committing one to another to be examples of those who are following Christ. When I come forward to receive, to pick up one of these elements, my embodiment walking forward is saying to you, you can follow me as I follow Christ. That's the kind of commitment we're making one to another. And we're not committing to do that perfectly. We're actually, we know we're going to do it imperfectly but committed together over the long haul, if we can continually come forward week after week and renew this, this promise one to another as God is reminding us of his promises to us, then we will be shaped into the kind of community where the character behind the words we say is as strong as the words that we use. And our commitments one to another are not couched in flowery words that don't mean anything like society around us, but they're birthed from a character that would give anything for the sake of our neighbor, those around us. So church, if you would stand, we're going to come forward and receive these elements today. And I want us to be reminded that we all, just as our physical bodies need renewal, we need sleep, we need food, we need water, and we need oxygen daily. So our spiritual beings need renewal. We need to be reminded of the promises of God. We need to remain in the sustenance of God. Every week we come forward and this piece of bread and this juice is new forgiveness. It is new daily bread. It is remind me, O oh God, once again, who I am called to be for the sake of my community and for the sake of those around me. So as we come forward today, let that be what leads us and guides us. Yes, come to the table of the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.